0: Today on The Prospect, we do things a little bit different. I interview Mike Evans, the founder of Full Court Peace, an organization that works in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, El Salvador, the Wind River Indian Reservation, and other destinations to rebuild basketball courts and use the sport to bridge the divide inside and out diverse neighborhoods. It is the use of basketball for the purpose of human rights, connection, and a simple idea. If we can all connect at a human level, the world might just be a better place. It is also at this time of year that basketball fans fall in love with their memories of March Madness and the NCAA tournament. Weeks of shining moments inside college basketball. With Mike, I talked about full court peace, but I also talked to him about a very personal essay he wrote. About his college basketball coach, Tobin Anderson, after Fairleigh Dickinson University, shocked the world by beating Purdue in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Only the second time a 15th seed has beaten a number one seed. The prospect was created for these types of conversations on the nuances and love of basketball, where the game is much bigger than just sport. Here is my wide-ranging conversation with Mike. All right. This is Prospect, Episode 7, special guest, Mike Evans. Mike, thank you for joining us. How are you?
1: I'm great, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: So where I want to start is, is you had a college basketball career, and I know... Those among us who played high school and then some college basketball did the summer basketball circuit. We kind of understand the idea of, of, of a recruit or a prospect. What was your experience in the transition from high school to college? Where did you end up going and who did you play for?
1: I was an all-state player in Connecticut, which in Texas is like being all-town. But I was being looked at. I got sniffed at by Davidson in Columbia, but really only worth the stamp, the letter was sent in the mail. And then I looked at a variety of Division 3s. I ended up playing at Hamilton College in Central New York, which back then had the high, top five highest winning percentage of any program, including North Carolina, UCLA, uh, most All-Americans, most games won, et cetera.
0: So now you, you play college basketball, and you are the founder of Full Court Peace, which is a charity organization, an incredible charity organization. Where does the idea for Full Court Peace come from, and what is it?
1: The organization's dedicated to bringing together communities that normally don't come together, and doing so through basketball. And it started in Belfast, Northern Ireland, I lived there after playing college basketball. I moved to Belfast to keep playing and to do some community work. That's kind of how I understood it. But when I got to Belfast, it was really eye-opening. I grew up an Irish American, but um, I ended up getting Catholic and Protestant boys to play basketball together. And there, especially back then, that was like Alabama in 1950, a black and a white team. If that's a good comparison
0: you wrote a book about that experience what's the name of that book
1: the book is the belfast blazers a journey of an american basketball coach in ireland Um, and it is largely about that group of boys and their willingness to play basketball together despite what everyone else in society says it's also about my coming-of-age experience going from player to coach
0: and after that experience in northern ireland you sort of expanded the reach of the of the charity i know personally i traveled to cuba with you talk to me about the the next steps after ireland and and how you sort of branched out with this idea and what you've done since then
1: after seeing the model work in belfast and you know it was just two high schools from rivaling communities forming one team together I got asked to go to Cuba in 2009, so six years before it opened, to explore the significance of basketball in their culture. And some Miami-based Cuban-Americans had asked me to go. So I happily went um, and came back and gave them a report and said, you know, it's not really guarded by the government, baseball is, I have volleyball is. And I saw it immediately as a way to start breaking down the barriers of Cuban-American and relationships that had been stymied for back then 50 years, now somewhat some 60 years. So I started hauling Americans down there with me to repair basketball courts. And that's like a staple project that we do now. And that started um, in Havana. At the very same time, the drug war was breaking out in Northern Mexico. And I started going to El Paso and working with the American consulate in Juarez to scope out courts. and. Um, basketball activities for kids that were literally under fire.
0: And what do you think the construction, the rehab, the renovation of these courts do for some of these communities. What have you seen it do for the communities, and what does it mean? What's your ultimate goal when you do this stuff?
1: The goal is is multifaceted. But to answer the first part of the question about what do I see, well, in both cases, in Cuba and Juarez, local people, everyday people who want to use these courts have don't have control of their neighborhoods, and that means very different things in each place. Violence has has overtaken the lives of people in Juarez. They can't go outside. They can't do what they normally want to do. And in Cuba, they've never felt control because there's an overbearing control uh, within the government. So giving a paintbrush to a local person, getting them out of their house, and letting them rehab their court, which in some cases in these cities has never been repaired, it's never been rehabbed, gives them immediate ownership of the space. And in Cuba, I learned the most valuable lesson, let the locals lead because local people want their court to look a certain way. And my role is to just help them get there. So I've seen that. I've seen that happen. The ultimate goal is that the visiting organization, the visiting group, be it white kids going into a black neighborhood, Americans going into a Cuban neighborhood. And like you saw, Americans, non-natives, going into native communities like I do in Wyoming. um, The ultimate goal is basic conversation. The long-term goal is when you look back on those experiences, you genuinely feel a little bit more open-minded toward the people you worked with than you did before.
0: And, you know, when I went to Cuba, I, I think personally I saw that firsthand, but I can imagine a lot of your trips is middle school kids, high school kids. Talk me through the importance of and the logistics of how that works and what they take away from taking these trips?
1: That's a really valuable question, because the, the model has changed on, if you just focus on Cuba for a second, you know, the model of who do you bring to Cuba has really changed. In the beginning, I wanted, you know, for, you quite honestly, for revenue reasons and for notoriety reasons, I wanted as many people to go as possible. But there's no Wi-Fi there. So you take a Fairfield County kid out of Wi-Fi, out of comfort, not all of them are going to be great at immersing themselves in a culture enough to change their minds about previously held misconceptions about that place the other piece that informed me on that logistics wise is how much do these people know about what's going on in cuba and why we're separated from them it's not often taught in every school as to how it went down you never know how it was taught what opinion was thrown at them but more important you know can a seventh grade boy conceptualize that painting of court with a Cuban contributes a little bit at a time towards breaking down barriers that have been created it really depends on the boy so the application process has become a little bit more arduous so I know that kids that I bring down there are gonna have a return on their investment when they get back
0: and for you personally and growing this organization What's the hustle like? How hard is it? How hard has it been to even get to where you are today?
1: So I started the organization at Belfast in 2006. 13 years later, I got my first paycheck. So I ran it pro bono, not out of the goodness of my heart. I'd love to say that. I mean, a lot of the work is motivated by altruism, but the reality is that living in Connecticut, living anywhere, you have to be able to pay your bills. So the hustle is I started a private basketball business uh, teaching kids how to shoot the ball about 15 years ago, which has been uh, has grown to be very, very big. Um, and I'm a school teacher, So you could claim that I have three jobs at the same time. They do all uh, work together. Kids who work out with me privately are sometimes kids who go to the schools where I teach. And those are sometimes kids who go on the trips with me or come and repair Rucker Park in Harlem with me. Um, But it really can feel extremely overwhelming um, to do the job. Now the check I get now just basically covers my mortgage. Um, And I've always been probably to a fault, too focused on the ratio of how much of the money that comes in going to the mission versus going to paying an executive director. It's a bad business model to be too much the other way. But it's a bad business model to be too much the opposite way. And I've had to balance that throughout this hustle this whole time.
0: When you look at what you've created, what is the plan for the future in terms of you want to grow this organization? Do you see full core peace? branching out into other sort of core elements outside of the court rehab and renovation. Talk me through some of your thinking for the future.
1: Yeah, that question is is well-timed. I got the uh, El Salvadoran government flew me out to to San Salvador last week to look at basketball, much like I was looking at Cuba back in 2009. Um, But in their case, in the wake of the alleged fall of MS-13 and Barrio 18, another gigantic gang organization in that country, um, they put 68,000 in jail. The streets are free. People are walking around them. And now they want to rebuild civil society, a strong element of which is sports and youth sports and youth experiences. I'd rather grow up than grow out. It would be phenomenal to have a station of full court pieces in every Latin American country or to have an inter-Latin American league. But those are dreams that I think would take me away from what I really see as the future, which is I want to get it to a point where local people in any context can just meet, reach out to us and we can help them by sending them sort of a starter kit or the things they need right away so we don't have to go out there to fix their court. But they do feel like they can be entrepreneurs with our support to grow basketball in their community and grow more opportunities Uh, for kids, especially in perilous situations.
0: With full core peace, uh, you mentioned Cuba, El Salvador. I was a part of a trip of sort of more of a scouting mission in Wind River with you. Talk to me about what the thinking was about wanting to bring full core peace, let's call it, back home here to the United States in a way by going to the Wind River Indian Reservation. Talk to me about um the few experiences you've had doing that
1: yeah i've been out to wind river about eight times and brought about 75 or 80 people out there in total it is the most tenuous of all of our situations um aside from going into um housing projects in 2020 during uh civil unrest in our country which was short-lived and i think we all at least for a little bit got over it and and those are easier projects now but You know, fast forward, you're in Wyoming, you're in uh, a gas station, little marketplace on the reservation, and you're not native. It's tenable, or it's tangible, I should say, and untenable. There's looks, there's stares, and I'm not imagining it. And if I am, I guess that's just kind of part of it. You don't feel connected. There aren't a lot of thank yous. there's a lot of, why are you here? And you explain, oh, I'm fixing the court up the road. And basketball is religion on that reservation. And they don't. that doesn't make them flinch. That doesn't make them say, oh, okay, great. I didn't know who you were. Like in Belfast, you're on the wrong side of the community. You're in a Protestant community. They see me, they assume I'm a Catholic. No, I'm here coaching. I coach at the school. Problem, you know, diffused. Not in Wyoming. Um, and the catalyst for that was COVID came and I had to cancel um, all of my trips to Cuba. And I had started the year before, you and I went out there to scope it out, and I met someone on a trip and they recommended I do it, and I was just being adventurous. But COVID canceled everything. People felt more comfortable doing domestic work. But there's also that great documentary um, that was formerly called Res Ball, but they changed the name, about what basketball means to these people. And I've heard for years about the folklore of basketball on these reservations. Um, and we've really made a lot of progress, With especially even with the relationship part. It's, it's really coming along.
0: Now, what was the feedback from the young kids when they did go out and spend time there? Any insight from them?
1: Yeah, so the first trip, we didn't engage with any natives, any kids, because I couldn't get kids to come out because, you know, adults protect kids in every community, and adults, native adults, are gonna protect kids from unknown non-natives immediately. So um, the first feedback was, wow, Wyoming's beautiful. The natives really have it hard. You can see that. There's visual rhetoric everywhere that points to that. These houses are dilapidated, these trailers. That's that's trip number one. You know, fast forward trip number three or four, we're finally getting to pick up basketball games going. And in the van the next day, the non-native kids that I'm with are, you know, saying, oh, I got so-and-so's phone number. I'm texting with them now. They want to play again tonight. I mean, that is what matters. And the best story that's ever come out of it is a kid texted me a year after going on a trip saying, hey, I forgot to tell you, I play video games against so-and-so like once a week. So they connect on the Internet. Which is the reality of our of our world now that, that that counts as you know human interaction.
0: Back to the El Salvador trip. What was your takeaway? What's the plan moving forward in terms of are you going to go back? Do you think it's manageable? What what are you thinking?
1: So I, I it's definitely manageable. Um, Cuba, I work I don't work with the government, so it makes it extremely difficult to get things done. Um, Juarez, I worked with the consulate for a little bit of time. But when I didn't work with them, it got very difficult because they didn't really have a team on the ground. El Salvador flew me there. The government, I was with the governor, the youngest governor in the country. He's 30 years old. He's a governor of the state of Cuscatlan. um, Took me to 15 communities to look at courts and he's managing the whole thing. All I need to do is to start out stage one is send them basketballs. We decided that basketballs were prohibitively expensive in El Salvador and hard to access where they're sold. Um, So I said, okay, I'll start getting you guys basketballs. And we have thousands of basketballs um, collected from previous efforts, but because it's so connected to the government, I do think it's successful without my having to be there a lot. Um, Whether I can run trips there or not is going to depend on whether they can really keep MS-13 down. You're talking about, you know, all these countries have these old, old parts of their cities that the Spanish built. And if you go to San Juan, Puerto Rico, It's a feature of the country. Downtown Havana, where they've kept it nice, it's all built by the Spanish, right? And these bricks and and amazing architecture. El El Salvador has that, but they haven't been able to enjoy it for 30 years. It would close at four o'clock because MS-13 would be there. And I went, and there's a Starbucks there now. So it looks like they're really making, they're actually doing it. Um, You know, the news about the prisons and the human rights and all that is obviously there bukele the president has changed the constitution so he can run again i mean it's it's dicey but it's i did not feel unsafe and i've been to some pretty unsafe places
0: yeah i personally i know that story having done research on another project i'm working on there's a brilliant new yorker article that was written about what's going on and it it like you sort of alluded to you know when you lock up sixty eight thousand people that's, that's that's a serious move by a government, you know? But from what I have taken away from the reporting that I've read is the general public seems to be supportive of it because of, like you said, this iron grip that MS-13 has had in that country for a very, you know, long time.
1: Yeah, I don't think people care about how he's doing it. You know, they, 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 the, the rumor is 70 to 90% approval rate which you never hear in our country. You'd never hear 70, let alone 90. But I don't think people care. Like in Colombia, you used to not be able to go to Colombia. And then Uribe, a former member of one of the groups, comes out and works with us and they get everyone out of there. And now there's direct flights from JetBlue to three major cities and the country is totally different. And if you meet a Colombian, they tell you whether they either love Uribe or hate him, But they all agree like our country is totally different. I think that's what we're looking at The question is, how do you maintain that? How do you sustain, you know, apparently they're all fleeing. So if they didn't catch them, when I was there on Wednesday, they put 2,000 more in jail. They got 68,000 in jail. You know, they built a prison for that group. What happens if Bukele runs out of office, gets a second term, he finishes, and a radical comes in like it does in that region, and they have a different policy. I I, I can't. I wish I could predict the future. You no, know? you
0: know, it's interesting. The one thing I was surprised by in doing my research, I had always thought that Ms. Thirteen was born inside El Salvador. It's actually the opposite. Ms. Thirteen was born in Los Angeles and then was transported down to El Salvador. You know, the El Salvadorian gangs in Los Angeles. I mean, listen, I think it's a story that I've been tracking that I find interesting. Are there any El Salvador NBA players?
1: So there are none. I've I've done, I've researched it. There aren't that many baseball players either, which I I need need to reach out to somebody and all that. Um, There isn't a long list of, there's soccer players, you know. um, But uh, I actually, I don't know the actual details of its founding in LA. I do know that it was founded in LA, but I thought it was founded in a prison and it made its way to LA and then it made its way down to El Salvador. But um, the governor told me that uh, the, Costa Rican, the president of Costa Rica was giving Bukele a hard time publicly, like you're abusing human rights, putting all these people in jail. And now Costa Rica's having an MS-13 problem apparently because they're all leaving and they're going there. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens around the region with all of them leaving. Does does their does their platform in Honduras grow? You know, they have these other platforms in these countries where they don't really have the control of what's going on. What's the result? They're not just going to quit. You know, they're a huge organization. Um, it's going to be pretty fascinating to see.
0: And speaking of relationships with the NBA or NBA players, what, what has been your experience in trying to incorporate the NBA or NBA players into full core piece?
1: Yeah, I, I've had a, a, a bevy of experiences with that. Um, you know, my first experience was uh, I got Vin Baker to speak at a basketball camp in Connecticut where we got white, black and, and Hispanic kids to play on teams together. And he was excellent. Vin Baker was excellent. Um and that yeah, Pat Garrity spoke at a camp, and he was excellent. So, individual basis w- was phenomenal. Um, I then had an experience where I had been working in Cuba for about five years, and the NBA um, went down when the border opened um, in 2015. They went down to scope out what they could do, and they inevitably landed at these two courts that are sort of the Rucker Park of Havana, and they were in, they were they were painted by us for five years and we had grown our brand and grown a family of people there. And it was a proud moment when the NBA called me and said, well, we were down there and we said, hey, we're doing this to the court because they were planning on going down and filming Kevin Mutombo and Steve Nash visiting Havana. And the Cubans said, well, you should probably talk to this guy, Mike, because you know he's kind of had a control of painting this and he's helped us out a lot. So we hop on the phone and the NBA is it it's the NBA cares and NBA International and uh, they were pretty stubborn about well here's what we're planning to do um, and I said okay well I would really like to be there for that and they said you're welcome to come and I was I was a little bit annoyed that they didn't want to fly me down there to, to help them get into this community and when I arrived to see Motumbo and Nash on the court and they had put glass backboards up which I'll come back to in a second. And they, you know, with new rims and all that kind of stuff. And uh, previously we had metal backboards with metal rim and wooden backboards in a metal rim. Uh, The court had been painted with the wrong type of paint. So it was very slippery. And Matumbo and Nash, unbeknownst to them, it's not their fault, were running a clinic with kids who weren't from that neighborhood. The Cuban government had decided who would be at the clinic. um, And I stood there and watched with everyone from that neighborhood, uh, sort of in disbelief as to what was happening on the court. Um, And then they left, and they had about 50 basketballs left over, uh, which I asked them, the NBA, to give to one of my coaches, one guy that I help out, and they gave it to the Cuban government instead. Um, And they had hired or they had asked all the local people that I work with to help them put the baskets in and paint the court, but didn't pay them anything. It was a little bit messy, um, and so I came away from that with that, you know, the positive of that is that you don't get big and you don't tell local people what to do. You, you just help local people find their own way. You help them find their path and you stay out of the way and you build relationships on the ground and those are the most valuable things that, that you can do. I'm not sure, you know, I, I then worked with Isaiah Whitehead on Coney Island um, two years ago getting his tournament off the ground and Sebastian Telfair and, and guys like that and, and that was fascinating to get to know Coney Island and and I had a lot of credibility because I knew Isaiah and I, I came to their rescue right when they right when they needed it. So I think the lesson learned is stay away from big corporate and try to get relationships going with private players.
0: That makes sense. I think anyone growing up this time of year, March Madness, is a special time. It's a time that you think back to games you watched or how excited you were on the Thursday. Very recently, if you were watching this weekend or I think it was on Thursday, you watched Fairleigh Dickinson, a 16 seed, beat a number one seed, which I think it was the second time this has happened right and in watching that i I was at the airport so i'm watching it on my phone and i'm kind of laughing and and smiling and waiting to get on an airplane and the name tobin anderson kept ringing in my ears because i knew that you had mentioned tobin before in some form or fashion and when i texted you you sent me a link to a, a blog post that you wrote that i thought was actually very beautiful so tell me about your experience with Tobin, and when and why you wrote this letter. I think it, it's really it's really really interesting story.
1: So I like you dealt with Tobin Anderson at five star basketball camp at Station Thirteen. So for it's not really getting out a lot in the media. This guy, when he was young, probably still in his twenties, had done a ball handling video with QB Brown. And when you showed up to Station 13, which is this extra station, for those of you that want to work hard at Five Star, which is already a camp where they just treat you like an animal, you know, you had to go to the station and his ball handling was better than anyone's in the camps. And I remembered him and loved his intensity. And then I went to go, um, I got recruited by Williams College out of high school, which in, you know, in Hamilton in Latin means rejected from Williams. It means you didn't get into Williams. So I didn't get into Williams. And the coach at Williams, the head coach, uh, Dave Paulson, says, I'm gonna call someone who's not in our league to recruit you so I get you out of our league so I don't have to play against you. I don't know if he was blowing smoke or not. He calls Tobin Anderson. Tobin Anderson's the head coach at Clarkson University in New York. Tobin calls me, I'm 18. He's like, hey, you know, Dave Paulson says, he loves you, I've seen your tape, this and that. I'd love you to come look at Clarkson. I said, coach, I remember you from five-star. This is unbelievable, but I have already committed to Hamilton College. And he says, oh, well, I'll be seeing you then. We play Hamilton every year. So three years, I'm playing in Hamilton. We play Clarkson. And my junior year, they beat us at home, which is crazy because we were the best team in the league. Um, And uh, we we still won the league, but um, they beat us on our home floor in front of a big crowd. And... um, We didn't, you know, as an opponent, I really didn't like the guy because he was the way he kind of carried himself. He was young and I wanted to win and this and that. Um, And then the the job at Hamilton opens up and that's a whole other story. And it's it's frankly, you know, it was very disappointing the way Hamilton College uh, handled forcing out the coach I was playing for, who was a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, But lo and behold, Tobin Anderson gets the job. So Tobin becomes my coach. And I'm the only senior going into my senior year. I'm in love with this previous coach and the whole history of our program. And Tobin wants to change everything. And a lot like FDU, he brought in two uh, transfers, one of whom was the player of the year in the league the year before. So I knew we were going to be really good. But I wanted to be good with my guys. I was still stuck with my guys. Tobin came in, he changed every bit of culture. He changed all of our routines. Um, He had this thing, Friday mornings, you know, Thursday night in college is a fun night. Well, not when Tobin Anderson's your coach. Friday morning, you have to run a 20 and 20, which is 20 suicides in 20 minutes. And the guards have to finish their suicide in under 25 seconds every time. So you have 35 seconds to rest before the next suicide starts. This starts, I'm like, this guy's crazy, you know? Um, And then I started really butting heads with him that whole season. I was the only senior captain. Um, I missed my old coach. We played my, my old coach's new team and lost to them. And it was just the most emotional, biggest emotional roller coaster I had really ever been on. Um, at the end of the day, I held Tobin Anderson accountable for my coach being pushed out. And that was a stubborn, idiotic 22 year old doing that. Never should have done that. I had this guy who was such a phenomenal coach, a legend, Uh, Still a better ball handler than everyone on our team. By the way, I would go try to play in the alumni gym. He would be in there door locked, which was new. You don't lock the alumni gym. He's like, I got to do 100 full court layups before I can let you in. That was his lunchtime workout. 194 foot or 84 foot layups at lunchtime. The guy is off off the chain. Um, And his dad, Steve Anderson, uh, who passed away, uh, was on the staff as well, and he knew so much. But he had been Tobin's high school coach out in Iowa. But we had this best team on paper in the country, and we went 18 and 10 and lost in the finals of our conference tournament. And I held such a grudge that it was him. In my postseason meeting with him, I blamed him. You know, it was it was embarrassing. Looking back, it's embarrassing. And then. Um, Two years later, after being in Belfast and realizing what it meant to be a coach, a little bit at least, I reached out to him and I said, look, I'm really sorry, man. I, I met with him at, that summer and I said, I just, I wrote him a letter in, in, in the mail. I said, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I just was holding you accountable for something you didn't do. And he said, I'm sorry too. And it wasn't just a, to make me feel better. He explained that. He didn't stop and look at what I had been going through, that I had been hoping to be a captain for the previous coach and have all my, be a starter. I didn't start my senior year. He started me on senior night and I nine threes and he gave me this look like I, you know, of course you have nine threes on senior night. Um, but when he apologized to me, he showed me that you can come down and, and be even with somebody. And, and that's we, we went back to the beginning of our relationship. Um, and then he had me be the shooting coach for the team. Um, he had me be the shooting coach for his St. Thomas Aquinas teams that were dominant across the country. Um, and uh, you know, he invited me to, the, I saw him coaching against Sacred Heart. He left a ticket for me to watch FDU play Sacred Heart. And I saw him and little did I know, I'd be watching him on TV. And I wrote the blog Dom, to answer your question because I wanted people to know what this guy was like on a human level. I wanted people to know that you know, somewhere in his path, he remembered everybody. And he really changed my life and, 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 and said he was sorry, you know, and, and we, we, were, we were equals um, again. Um, and it was really special. And um, I don't know where he'll land or whatever, but whoever gets him is so lucky because he's such a good human being and not just a great basketball coach.
0: And knowing what I know about college basketball coaches, who I think some of them do have egos. I'm surprised that he did accept that apology in a way, like you said, lower himself. But what I guess in that whole story, what I'm laughing about is the allure of Station 13 and 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 what you felt about him didn't carry over into your college date.
1: It, it did when I was warming up as a sophomore and saw him on the sideline oh my god that's tobin anderson a part that i left out is actually pretty interesting when the interviews went out when the applications came in to replace tom murphy it was like 90 percent hamilton graduates who became coaches this guy created coaches like kyle smith at washington state played at hamilton billy Geithner at uh, the list goes on at eastern connecticut um so w- they narrowed it down to four candidates and a freshman and I interviewed all four candidates and one of them was Tobin Anderson. And when we got to the search committee meeting with the athletic director, they said list them one through four. We listed one through three, all the Hamilton guys. We wouldn't even list Tobin because we wanted a family member to come in. We were so distraught by the handling of our hero being ousted that we ignored who was coming in. And then, like I said, when he got the job, I was like, oh, well, he's part of it. He's part of pushing him out. All the guy was doing was was getting a better college job. And it looked like it worked out.
0: Uh, I'll have to bring you back on so we can tell five-star stories for, for, for people who don't know the five-star basketball camp and the things that, as a high school basketball player, if you went to a sort of a rite of passage, whether it was the powdered eggs, and powdered milk they fed you in the morning, or the fact that in the middle of the summer in the Poconos, it would get down to 40 degrees to then get up to about 100 during the day, which was a nice mix. And Garf playing uh, Judy Garland to wake you up in the morning with a mix of Frank Sinatra and him saying, and I'll, I'll never get this out of my head ever, when he would do the countdown and he would go, it's almost. Post time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's for a specific audience. Some of that stuff's pretty traumatic. I mean, uh, that place was just a machine. But you, nothing better than wearing the shirt when you got back home. You were like, yeah, I went to fight. I just did it. I got out. I just got out. If you wear the orange shirt, and your friends would know that you didn't eat the previous week. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for thanks for coming on and and telling me about full court peace. I think it's it's an important story. Um, and you know, continue doing that stuff and I'll check back in with you on the El Salvador stuff, um, down the line. Okay.
1: Yep. Don, thanks for having me, man. Awesome stuff. Thank you.